So I, I have a question for you as we get into uh, today's, today's conversation. Here's the question. Uh, when, when you look at people, what do you notice first? This can be rhetorical. We actually, I, I have no interest in actually hearing the answer that you might give. <clears throat> but I don't, mean, I don't mean like clothes or whatever. I mean, I mean what sorts of opinions are the first things to form in you when you notice somebody? What sorts of opinions? Um, what, do you, what do you think about, about people, about their lifestyles, about what their values might be? When you walk down the street, when you watch the news, when you read a book, when you scroll and you see somebody, what, what are the types of opinions that form first? <clears throat> Are, uh, here, here's, here's the question beneath the question, okay? Do you more readily notice the positive or do you more readily notice something to criticize? I'll wait. Because I know when we look at the culture and the world around us, I know what often is the answer. Um, and which is why one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we're having this series of conversations from the scriptures during the summer here. We are talking about what it means to create culture, all right? Um, to, <clears throat> to be people who don't just respond to culture, who don't just react to what's happening around us, but who understand that we have a role to set the course, to actually be a living example within the church and within our lives of the beauty and the fresh breath of what God's world looks like. We have the chance to, to not just uh, kind of be a part of things, but to set a trajectory, to do something that has ripple-down effects for the sake of God's beautiful, good kingdom. All right, so, so we've been talking about, uh, you know, various examples in the scriptures of, of people or, or stories who created a culture, who created something that others could see and follow in down the road that looked like Jesus, all right? Uh, so last week we talked about a culture of going first, of being willing to initiate even when failure is a possibility. We talked about Peter walking on the water last week. And then uh, before that, we've talked about um, uh, a culture of fostering, of caring for things that we can't see the finality of always, looking at the story of Joseph that Sabrina shared last uh, two weeks ago. We talked about a culture with uh, the three guys in Daniel um, walking into the fire, a culture of humble conviction and how beautiful and powerful it is when we can uh, walk in faith, but also humility. So let's get back then um, to the original question. Do you tend to dwell on the beautiful or do you tend to dwell on the problematic when you look at the world, when you look at people? All right, that's our question. Uh, in the book of Philippians, just to give you a little, uh, a little intro to this, we're, we're given an encouragement, Paul's writing, uh, to a, a church that's developing. They're actually doing a lot of things really well. It's one of the healthier churches um, out there. Not perfect by any stretch. But, uh, but he says a final encouragement near the end of his, of his letter to the Philippians. And he says, now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what's true, what is honorable, what is right, pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Now, what we tend to do with something like this is we tend to think only about our internal world, about our, our own minds and the temptations within it and stuff like that, and say, I need, to, 
I need to, to think about, about good and healthy things and, you know, whatever that looks like. But we, we don't often, I think, allow this to really seep into our interpersonal relationships and how we look at people. Certainly it's included here, but maybe sometimes we, we do such a, uh, a focus on kind of our own moments in life and what our attitudes are about them that we miss how this can be taken as we look at other people. How would it change our interactions and our internal world if Paul's challenge included not just temptations or sinful thoughts uh, or the things that we watch that are not edifying, people tend to do those sorts of things on their list, but we put this command on top of people. As you look at people, fix your eyes on what's true, on what's honorable, on what's right, pure, lovely, and admirable. If you can't find anything beautiful and honorable about somebody, might I suggest that the problem is not with them? If we believe, as we do believe, that we are all created in God's image, that we are all image bearers, then it means that even though those images can get a little bit tattered, a little bit corroded, that the image is always there. And our job is to begin to recognize that because of what it does in us and what it does in, world, in the world around us. But those are nice words from Paul. Uh, you know what I really like, though? I like seeing what people do, not what people say. Really like seeing what people do and not what people say. So let's take a look at a little story from Acts 17, one that I find super compelling. And I like to talk about this every couple of years because it brings out something that is absolutely core in the goodness of the kingdom of God. So in Acts 17, um, here's what's, what's been happening. Paul and, and Silas and Timothy have been traveling around, going from one city to another or one town to another, um, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes people are following Jesus, sometimes they're trying to kill Paul, as is the most recent case as we head into chapter 17, or as we are in chapter 17. So they've just come out of Berea, and essentially there's been this group of, of Jewish people that are upset that what Paul is doing is kind of undermining what they see as the core of Jewish faith. So because Paul is a Jesus follower, some of the things that he is saying, others are saying, who are really committed to, to Judaism and its laws and its belief systems are saying, this guy's dangerous. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. This is the fulfillment <laughs> of, you know, of, of my Jewishness, of my faith, of, of the, the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament. And they're saying, hold up, no, it's not. So anyways, it gets real dangerous for him. And the group decides, you know what, Paul, you need to get out of here. We're going to protect you. And we're going to go on for just a little bit longer. Okay, so anyways, um, so that's, that's what's going on. Um, Silas and Timothy stay in this place called Berea, which we're not talking about. And then um, those uh, who were kind of protecting Paul take him to Athens and, left, and leave him with instructions uh, for, and he left them with instructions for uh, Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Okay, so this is not a part of the plan. Very important. There is no preconceived, we need to travel to Athens because I'm going to do something there. This is just Paul kind of like, you know, like just kind of, you know, he's just waiting. They're like, Paul, you shouldn't be in this other place. You've got a valuable message. Let's not die yet. And Paul's probably like, I am more than willing to die. And then he says, no, we need you alive. That's a Hamilton reference, by the way. Uh, but anyways, so, so what happens is Paul is just here. And this is so important because... Because what we need to know is the moment that's about to occur is just what happens when a Christ follower is in life's situations. This was never drawn up on a whiteboard in advance. 
okay? So Paul is sitting in Athens with nothing to do but wait. And here's the story, okay? Here's the story. Um, while Paul was waiting, he was greatly distressed to see that the city of Athens was full of idols. All right, so let's just stop right there. So Paul is distressed because he walks through the city that is full of idols. Now, why would that distress Paul so much? Well, yes, because idolatry is a bad thing and Jews were against it, but also because what an idol was, was an image, a carved or what we might call graven image. Now, if you know anything about the second commandment, then you know that Jews were not allowed to be even around any images that had been created of another, okay? That's why uh, in Jerusalem, you would have seen no pictures, nothing, no carvings, nothing like that, because in Judaism, no graven images, period, okay? Um, and so, so anyways, Paul is looking around, and he is around a culture that has, uh, who, Petronius has a quote, I believe. Let me see if I have it here. I'm, I'm sure I have it. Um, there it is. Uh, uh, Petronius, one of the ancient historians, said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man because they were 30,000 idols. And Athens wasn't as big as it is now. So you can just imagine walking through the stair, through the, through the, the square and seeing stone and wood carvings, and then there's temples all over the place uh, dotting specific, specifically where Paul ends up teaching and, and speaking about. And so the word, the city was full of idols. The word is, Paul was walking through a forest of images. <laughs> that's what, that's what the, the um, Greek word there is, kate idolos, a forest of images. So it was like there were trees. Just imagine everything a Jew is not supposed to be near, not supposed to be a part of. And he's walking through this city that he is really uncomfortable with, and he becomes greatly distressed. All right. Here's verse 17. Um, wait, hold on. Let's see. Do I need to talk about sculptures at all? Oh, yes. What's about to happen with this? This is really important culturally. So we're about to see Paul engage with a world that is full of graven images. And by doing that, instead of running away, by finding a way to engage and talk with them about it, Paul actually paves the way for future generations of Jewish Christians to be able to dwell in proximity to non-Jewish people. Okay, really, really, really important. So by Paul crossing this boundary that he's about to cross, by speaking with people, by walking through the square, by engaging, he actually sets a culture that says, listen, you don't need to run from people. You don't need to say, ooh, that's so dirty, I can't be around it. Instead, maybe we engage it and learn how to redeem it and learn how to love the people around these things or places or things that we think might be out of reach of God. So Paul sets a lot of culture with, with what's about to happen. Um, so, so, and the point there is that while he was doing that, Paul proved that he believed that God was actually already at work. We're going to see this in these words, but, but I want you to be thinking about this in advance. Do you believe that God is at work already all over the place in our world, even in the people and the places that you might think are outside of Christian culture, outside of Christian influence? Do you believe that God might be at work in those places? And if so, are you looking for it? Okay, so verse 17, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. 
a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So he's talking and people are, are hearing these ideas and, and, and they begin to have a conversation. Some ask them, what is this babbler trying to say? It's really fun. I have a friend who's currently, who this week, about four days ago, was standing at the Areopagus where Paul did this in modern day Turkey. And, um, and he's, I'm sorry, in, in modern day, in today's Athens, which, sorry, I was doing all sorts of mapping earlier today. My mind got screwed up. So, um, and he's standing there where Paul would have delivered this speech. And that word of babbling, what is this guy babbling about, is, is an image of a bird pecking at random seeds. And there was a pigeon on these rocks, just pecking. And, and he's, he's, a, he's a Hebrew scholar. And so, and so he said, or Hebrew and Greek. And so he said, it's absolutely fascinating to see a pigeon on the rocks where Paul was. And other people are looking at Paul just going on and on about this guy named Jesus and how he was God's son or whatever and the resurrection of the dead. And to them, it just felt like this guy's just kind of just, just picking its seed all over the place, just hopping around, chatting with people. And so it's just this beautiful image of, of history coming to life. But anyways, that's probably not particularly helpful for this uh, message at all. So others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. That's uh, this kind of rocky hillside um, where, where a lot of the philosophers would talk. Where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Okay, so that's where we end up in verse 21. Uh, apologize for my, my beard here. Uh, so Paul is actually, um, he's, he's getting set up. He's been invited to share uh, his thoughts on what's going on. And he decides that he's going to. So he, it's really, really interesting because what he's about to do is he's about to use the idea of idols and, and this culture to engage them to talk about Jesus. Um, but while he does it, he's preaching in front of this thing called the Acropolis, which is one of the most famous. Um, so he's on this lower hill, and it's on the highest hill in the city. And it's one of the most famous kind of epicenters of, of Greek um, Greek spirituality. So all of the temples would have been up there and all sorts of acts of worship. And so he's right in front of it. And he's, it's as if he's using the spatial lesson to show the alternative uh, that the way of Jesus is to idol worship because he's removed from there. He's removed from the places that all of the idols dwell, but he's within view of them. And so, so he's about to show them a more and truer way, way rather than deciding he's simply going to trash what matters to them a lot. All right. So here's, let's see how he does it. All right. So, this is, the, this is the bread and butter. In Acts 17, verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the, uh, of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Let's just stop there. We sometimes talk about religiosity being a bad thing, right? Because you can, it can make you very rigid, it can make you... Uh, judgmental. It can make you law-based instead of grace-based. That's not what's happening here. To be religious means to be focused on God, all right? And so the first thing that Paul says after walking through a forest of idols is, hey, everyone, I see you're really religious. Me too. <laughs> so the first thing he says is he looks around, 
he looks around and he finds the good. The first thing he does when he speaks to them is he finds something that can be affirmed. All right? He finds something that is able to be, to be recognized and say, you know what? I see that you care a lot about the gods or God. I see that you're very religious, friends. Very, really, really, really interesting. The first thing he does. And then he goes on. Uh, he says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Now, number one, a lot of Jewish people would have gone, <gasps> you looked carefully? Like, you got a closer look? You're supposed to flee from evil, and these are evil. But Paul says, no, I looked carefully. And here's what that communicates to us as Jesus people. It, it says that Paul was, was willing to take time to reflect, to learn, and to think. Okay? He, he looked carefully. He looked at the culture around him to say, what are you actually about? Um, how's that? That's good, right? Do you know what those are? It's, no, it's a tandem bike. No, it's glasses. Um, so so, uh, so that's, that's this, this idea that Paul looks carefully and he desires to actually understand. He desires to understand, okay? Uh, we often simply react, right? Uh, we, we, we don't reflect, we just respond or we react. And Paul looks carefully. Paul looks carefully at something that culturally is vastly different than, him, than his own experience, something that he actually honestly disagrees with, but he looks carefully. He finds what's good and he looks really carefully. This is a really horrible blind spot right now in our, in our divisive culture. Really horrible blind spot. Um, we, uh, we don't ask why. We don't ask why. We just pass judgment. We just, we just paint people with one broad stroke, and we don't ask why. Why do you feel that way? Why is that so important to you? Why is your story so different than mine? Why is your perspective so different? There's a reason, friends. You still might disagree at the end of the day, but there is a reason why people have different perspectives. And if we are not willing to learn the why, if we're not willing to look carefully, then we will never be willing to grow in relationship, we'll never cross barriers, and we certainly won't represent Jesus well. Because it'll, it'll bar us from having good compassion. So there's an opportunity here that Paul saw. I had a, a friend a few years back that had absolutely no interest in church, and actually was very antagonistic toward Christianity. Anytime that we would talk, he would want to bring up something about the Bible, intending to kind of, um, I don't know, dis disprove something or, or something like that. Uh, his arguments weren't great, but, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of trying to prove the Bible either um, on my side, so I'm not a very good apologetic, um, because I, I just think that the way to Jesus is usually through the heart uh, more often than through the mind, uh, even though the mind is deeply engaged when we look at the scriptures and the stories are profound in shaping us and in understanding our own, our own Christian history. However, uh, I often wondered, like, dude, what's, what's the deal? Why, why is this a big deal? Like, why do you feel so strongly? You could just not be interested. And so uh, we became friends, though, over, over the course of a few years and spent a decent amount of time together. And one day, we were sitting together um, and... Uh, and he was mentioning that I was a weird pastor. 
that's neither here nor there, but that's how the conversation opened. He said, apparently he had had experiences and they were different. And so we just started chatting and, uh, and he said, you know, I grew up in the church. And I said, really? And he said, when I was eight, my dad died. And, uh, and you know what everyone told me? Everyone told me that God needed him more than I did. And I hate God. And I understood. I understood why it's so hard for him to look at Christianity as a loving, good thing if all of the pain that was caused in his life was because God just needed his dad in heaven more than he did here on earth. Let that be two lessons to you. Number one, there's often stories underneath the pain or the anger that people have. And number two, don't try to do theology with someone that's mourning. It's always hollow and it's often wrong. So that's just a little encouragement that when someone is suffering from loss and heartache and pain, your role as a Jesus person is presence, support, and simple, gentle encouragement, not explanation. You can do so much damage. But again, it took time to learn the story and understand why. And so I encourage you again to, to take a, a, an expression of saying, I want to learn. I want to know what makes people tick. I don't just want to assume what's going on in their heart. I want to assume, or I, I, I don't want to assume anything. I want to ask good questions. I want to look compassionately. I want to give benefit of the doubt. All right. So here we go. Uh, so we're moving on. He looks carefully. Um, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant. Now, again, we hear that as a real insult. But you, it might be more helpful to think of that word as uh, unsure or unknowing, okay? So you're ignorant, uh, unknowing of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And so we, I think it's really, really important that when we look at this, it sounds like he's about to be putting them down, but that's not actually what the story does, Okay. And so the way, the way it unfolds is he says, you have an unknown God, mostly because they had so many gods, they wanted to make sure that they didn't miss anybody. So if you miss somebody, they're going to get angry, and then there won't be crops next year. And so, so anyways, when, when this is what's happening and unfolding, he, he notes this. But here's what he does. He says, you have an altar to, the unknown God, to an unknown God. What a coincidence. I know him. <laughs> You know, so he finds this incredible point of connection, all right? He, he, he looks carefully, he begins to engage with them, and he says, look, you're getting it right in a way that I'm understanding it too. Isn't that amazing? He could just trash everything. He even chooses an altar because he knows that God's presence doesn't dwell in temples because because the Spirit of God has been unleashed on the world and because our bodies and our, we are temples of the Spirit. And so he doesn't choose one of the gods that dwells in the temple. He chooses this altar, this tribute to an unknown God, probably didn't even have an image there, which is really interesting. And he says, I know that God. I'd like to tell you about that God. Um, and here's what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples like that big one behind us built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, 
He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. I want you to note that last line. Paul's deep conviction is that God is not far from any one of us, friends. I know you got 30,000 gods around here, but let me tell you, as far or close as you think any of them are, this unknown God, he's right beside you. God's right beside you. So, it's this incredible, incredible uh, point of connection. In, he's completely embedded in a different culture, and he immediately notices where they might be reaching out toward God, claims it, and works with it. Okay. Um, and so then he goes on, and this is where it gets really, really weird. In verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Okay. This, this moment would make almost every single one of you uncomfortable if you, heard, if you heard me do this. Paul gets away with it because it's in the Bible. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting somebody. You usually don't quote somebody unless other people would know who you're quoting about, especially in a talk like this. But nobody knows Yahweh. So who's he talking about? He's talking about Zeus. That is a direct quote from a guy named Epimenides about Zeus. For in him we live and move and have our being. So Paul says, hey, you got this great quote. For in him we live and move and have our being. And isn't that right? As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Again, direct quote from Greek writings about Zeus. So he actually takes what they understand as the greatest God, doesn't even try to tear it down. It's, it's messed up. Like I was trying to figure out, like, is there a way for me to do this and, and make it really clear so that none of us are uncomfortable with what Paul does? And there's not. Um, so, so Paul just goes ahead and he lets people equate Zeus with God because if they believe that Zeus is all-powerful, he believes that God is all-powerful. And so he's going to use that as a tool for them to understand who God is. It's really, really interesting. I might liken this, though, to the fact that where there is truth, there is truth, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. I, I wonder how many of us would be uncomfortable with looking at a statement that um, Gandhi or the Buddha made that speaks of a deep truth about the world and about life and saying, wow, that is profoundly true. Or would we feel like because it doesn't come from our scriptures that it can't be true? But if it matches Jesus, if it matches God, and if we believe that all truth is God's truth, maybe we need to be a little more open with our friends who are reaching for something that is real and true and get a glimpse of it sometimes. It doesn't mean we affirm everything, but it means it's an opportunity for us to build bridges where we say, yes, loving others matters to me too. In fact, I think that's the core of God's heart. Or yes, I see this reflected actually in its fullness from Jesus. So there's opportunities that we have here that I think are really beautiful. And, uh, and if, if you feel like you're misunderstanding what I'm saying, we can chat afterwards a little bit and maybe I'll explain it better. Um, but you find the good. He looks carefully. He understands their story. Do you catch that? He knows what writings matter to them, okay? He understands their, oh boy. Yeah. He understands their story. 
He understands where they're coming from so that he can honor the things that matter without just going around like Hulk and just smashing everything, right? So instead of just destroying everything that they hold dear, he finds points of connections, he honors the fact that they have a story, and he uses it to point them toward God. Because then he goes on and says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, now he pushes it back toward the heart and the character of Yahweh and the character of Jesus and says, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, like an image made by human design and skill. How silly is that? If the God is the creator of the world, then we can't create God, although boy, do we ever try. But anyways, he continues on. And here's what I love, though. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, last kind of mini point here. Do you catch that? He's proclaiming this vastly different culture. Therefore, since we, <laughs> since we are God's offspring, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he's willing to share the journey with them. He says, hey, we're in this thing together. We are God's offspring. How much do, do Christians, unfortunately, sometimes act like we are God's children, but not, not him, you know? Um, and, and we miss we miss the shared journey that all of us are seeking to know what is most real and most true and find life in the purest way. And we found that in Jesus. But a lot of people are seeking that. I would say almost everyone is seeking that. And so to honor that there's a shared journey of seeking what's good and real and true and inviting people to find it with us is much more powerful than simply wagging our finger at people. It's more beautiful. It's more Christ-like. So there's always, there's always an opportunity to share the journey and to move from you to we. Therefore, what do we do about this? You know, Paul is, Paul is saying. Um, and he goes on, and he says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn toward honest truth, right? For he has a day set when he will judge the world by, uh, with justice by the man that he has appointed. It's a good thing that the judge of the world happens to be Jesus, and we know how Jesus treats people. He's been given proof to this, of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. That really messes with their theology. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. After that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the, Are uh, of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And that's the end of the story. We don't ever see if there was some big, great impact, although something that happened in Athens helped crumble the entire Greek pantheon one day, and Jesus continued to remain. <laughs> so it must have been something good. Uh, piece, of, piece of grass can crack concrete. Uh, so anyways, there is such beauty here. But I want you to think about the intentionality that Paul had to have and the commitment that would be needed in order to recognize the good in a culture that all he was probably able to see originally was all of the evil, all of the, the wickedness, the way that gods were worshipped at this time was very ugly. We won't even get into the details of it. But he could have just looked and said, you are all wicked. And instead he said, I see that you're seeking. I see that you're seeking something. I see that you have this deep religious desire to please the gods. Let me tell you, it's not maybe as hard as you think because God loves you. And rather than demanding everything from you, God wants you to be present with him, wants you to surrender to him to experience that beauty. Um, 
Paul wanted so badly for others to, to know the love of God that he would not even let the most anti-Jewish expressions become a barrier to Jesus because no one is far from him. Uh, we have been given that good and beautiful spirit of God within us. That means that we have the capacity to look out and see the entire world through the redemptive lens that Paul does at this moment. We have that capacity. Um, so I would ask you, on some level, what are the unknown gods around us? And by that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interpret it for you a little bit. What are the places where the Holy Spirit might already be at work, where you see compassion or generosity or understanding or, or love or a desire for truth that you can name, that you can connect to the ultimate goodness found in Jesus? Think about that for a moment. Because I guarantee you there's some things around you that you can recognize and say, wow, that is an open door because I see a glimpse of that longing for what's true and real. And we're going to wrap up in just a second, but I, I kind of, my wife tricked me into this conversation last night. Um, but I, I kind of want to talk about the other side of this whole story. And the other side of this whole story is that Paul also reframes the entire reality on a broader level about the gods here. He reframes that there's, there's no value in your, you know, your wood and your bronze. And, and so there is critique um, but he, he helps people see the goodness of God where it has become corroded and twisted. And so I wonder what, um, what Paul would say maybe while walking through the United States on a day like today. And maybe I'll take a stab at it. Um, I see from all of the symbols and the colors and the words that you have a great value on freedom. It seems you care very much about this. But let me tell you that there's a freedom that's bigger and deeper that I've known. Let me tell you that there's a freedom that doesn't obey borders and boundaries of countries. And there's a freedom that doesn't have to come through fighting, but rather by surrender. Let me tell you there's a freedom that's available to slaves, to the oppressed, to the poor, to those who are dying of hunger. A freedom that is greater than anything that you might be able to convey on a day like this. Let me tell you that that freedom is worth fighting for, but not in the ways that you've learned how to fight for it. And let me tell you that when you taste that freedom, the freedom from the power of sin and death, the freedom from hatred, self-loathing, the freedom from the pressure to accomplish everything in the world, the freedom of knowing that you are loved beyond measure, when that happens, then you can actually grasp freedom and work for freedom in real ways. And understand that when we proclaim words like freedom, sometimes those only apply to certain segments of our world. And when we experience the deepest freedom in Jesus, brothers and sisters of America, I invite you then to use what you've been given to work for active love and care and true freedom for everyone and to learn to listen to the stories of brothers and sisters who haven't experienced it in the same way as you. There's good to be seen. There's good to be claimed from the desire for freedom and liberty and justice. There's a problem when it turns into idolatry of nation and when it turns into ignoring those who are suffering and oppressed. But I'm all for recognizing the good friends. I'm all for recognizing the op opportunities that we have to help create uh, a country where everyone is loved and valued equally. I think it starts with Jesus in us, 
and then hopefully we can move to celebrate the truth of what freedom is um, and not just one portion of it. So that's my little mini sermon about that. Um, let's go back now. Let's go back to one final quote and then we will uh, give maybe two or three minutes for uh, catch box time with a couple questions. Um, and, then, uh, and then we will go, out, uh, go on our way today. I want to leave you with a quote from John Philip Newell, who's a theologian who wrote a book called The Rebirthing of God. And he says, do we know that within each one of us is the unspeakably beautiful beat of the sacred? Do we know that we can honor that sacredness in one another and in everything that has being? And do we know that this combination, growing in awareness that we are bearers of the presence, he's been speaking about the presence of Jesus, that we are bearers of the presence, along with a faithful commitment to honor that presence in one another and the earth, holds the key to transformation in our world. Transformation in our world comes when we look at other people and see the image of God in them, when we see the image of God in ourselves, and when we are committed to honoring that in every culture, even the ones who might even be actively opposed to our faith, because they're still worth loving. All right. Jesus, help us with all that. Amen.